very fortunate today to have David uh, here with us, and he'll be talking about uh, uh, the museum and also the concept of museum as art. Um, in, in many ways, uh, the Museum of Jurassic Technology is one of my favorite museums in the world. I have two favorite museums in the world, and uh, neither of which is a museum of modern or, or contemporary art. Uh, one of them is, is uh, uh, David's Museum of Jurassic Technology, and the other one, which bears some resemblance to it in, in some ways, is the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, England. Uh, if you ever have a chance uh, to visit either one of these museums, please do so. Uh, they look very different from the Hirshhorn, but I think they raise all kinds of questions about what the right or wrong way is to deal with material. And they really take us back to the concepts uh, of where museums originally began, which was with the idea of the cabinet of wonder. And in some ways, uh, this is a topic that interests me a great deal because I think sometimes the things we've lost in museums is this sense of wonder. Uh, people seem to want to have some kind of explanation about the work, of what the work is about. And in some ways, museums really started with this idea that objects had this kind of wonderful aura that you couldn't figure out, that it was something beyond uh, a mere explanation. So anyway, uh, we're fortunate to have David here with us to talk about it. He actually opened the Museum of Jurassic Technology, I guess about 20 years ago or so, um, and it's devoted to, I guess you could call it unusual uh, collections. Um, it's a museum, and, and I quote, it's a spot dedicated to the muses, a place where man's mind could attain a mood of aloofness above everyday affairs. Uh, what you'll see there, if you, if you get to go, uh, are exhibits that are scientific, uh, historical, artistic, uh, and maybe the most important thing is that maybe, just maybe, they seem to kind of blend fact and fiction uh, together, uh, where it really ceases to matter whether something is, quote, true or not true. Uh, you might see an exhibit on pronged ants, on horned humans, uh, or on the marvels of Jurassic technology. Um, and they're all accompanied by labels which um, uh, tell us about these objects, uh, sort of. So uh, David can kind of explain that, or not explain it as the case may be today. Before I introduce David uh, specifically, I'd just like to mention that uh, for you to grab one of our calendars that should be on a table uh, in the back so you can see some of the other um, programs that we have coming up over the next couple of months. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank uh, Melina Kalinowska for putting this uh, meet, the, uh, meet the, not meet the artist, but a lecture uh, together uh, for today. Uh, I appreciate that. Milena. And I want to just mention one, Meet the Artist, uh, that's coming up, which is a series, of course, we usually do on Thursday evenings. We just had one with Joseph Kosuth. Uh, we bought a piece recently that you can see just opposite uh, out in the uh, lower lobby area of the museum uh, by two artists, Ruth Jarman and Joe Gerhardt, uh, better known as Semiconductor. And I think their work uh, raises a lot of the same issues that we might be talking about today, about what's real uh, and what isn't real. And uh, so we just purchased that piece for uh, the museum collection. They will be here on Thursday, this coming Thursday, November 6th at 7 p.m. Uh, in the auditorium to talk about their work. And now turning to uh, David Wilson. David received his MFA from um, California Institute of the Arts in 1974. Uh, 
He is a filmmaker who's produced six independent films. Uh, I think the recent ones were under the auspices of the Museum of Jurassic Technology in conjunction with a production company called Cabinet, which is an arts-based uh, cultural institution in St. Petersburg, Russia. He's also done commercials, special effects, industrial films, uh, and trailers. Um, he uh, was the subject of a book that came out in um, 1995, I think, uh, by Lawrence Weschler, uh, a wonderful writer who had already taken on the subject of Robert Irwin, one of the artists featured up in the Ponza collection in another book uh, that was uh, very well written also. And in this book, he explores David's mind in something called Mr. Wilson's Cabinet uh, of Wonder. And I highly recommend that book to anybody uh, wanting to have more information uh, after today's talk. Uh, some of the exhibitions which have been at the Museum of Jurassic Technology include the Garden of Eden collections from Los Angeles area mobile home parks, the Napoleon Library, Athanasius Kircher, someone I quote from all the time in my essays. Uh, 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 I do, I do, I really do, that's not a joke. The World is Bound uh, with Secret Knots, uh, that was the name of that exhibition. Uh, no One May Ever Have the Same Knowledge Again, Letters to Mount Wilson Observatory, 1915 to 1935. Uh, David's been honored uh, with numerous awards, uh, not the least of which uh, is the uh, well-known MacArthur Grant, uh, which he received in 2001. And so I'd, let's uh, give a warm welcome to David Wilson. Well, thank you, Carrie. I don't think we've ever been mentioned in the same sentence with the Pitt Rivers Museum, and that's quite an honor, so thank you for that, and all those other kind of words you said. Um, I'd like to thank as well um, Elena, who has been wonderful to meet today, and um, Evelyn as well, who just took me through this extraordinary uh, exhibition upstairs, the Ponza Collection exhibition that I guess I'm speaking in connection with, um, I liked the, um, I guess, subtitle, Impossible Collecting, that is connected with that exhibition, but I think in our minds, we kind of turned that over or turned it around as we're wont to do, and tonight, is what, or this afternoon, is what I think I'm gonna try and talk about is one particular aspect of the museum's practice rather than talk in general about our work at the museum. We found over the years that it's better to you know, focus on one area and this, the area that I thought would be appropriate given the, the thought the impossible collecting is perhaps m more collecting the impossible which brings us to this um, submission of the Museum of Jurassic Technology. And this submission is a long-standing effort that we've had at the museum since the very earliest days of our short existence. That effort is to bring to a larger audience evidence of human artistry and ingenuity on the microscopic scale. We've done a number of exhibitions 
in these areas. Actually, some of our very first exhibitions were, were exhibiting in these areas, and our most recent, um, one of our, well, our actually upcoming uh, exhibition is also going to be in that area as well. So we've explored those areas quite a bit and find them ever, the smaller we go, the richer it gets. But actually, um, the thing I thought to begin with is I would like most of all to just read you a story. This um, story hopefully by the end it will be clear, it will make sense why I might want to begin with it. It's uh, actually a piece or a section of a story written by um, one in the long line of Irish literary geniuses. This particular Irish literary genius is maybe less well known than some of the other Irish literary geniuses. This one's n name is, uh, well, one of his names is Flan O'Brien. He also um, wrote under the Gaelic name Miles Nagopin or Brian O'Nolan. He was a newspaper man by trade and wrote extraordinary columns for um, the Dublin paper on a weekly basis, but he also wrote five novels. Our museum is now comprised of a staff of wonderful people from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. Um, we don't necessarily have so much in common, except for that we all spent probably way too much time as children in museums when we should have been outside in the sun playing. And also, we had all read and found movingly inspiring Flann O'Brien's novel, The Third Policeman. So it's a little section from that novel that I'd like to begin with. We're just picking up in the middle of this story. It's the story of a um, unnamed protagonist and a policeman named Macruz Keen. On the screen here, I'm going to be running, just for the sake of time really, um, a, a video from an exhibition we actually did in the early 90s, one of this, in this area of interest, called uh, Nanotechnology Machines in the Microscopic Realm. So that's what you'll be seeing on the screen. It is not today or yesterday I started pointing spears, he said, but maybe you would like to see something else that is a medium fair example of supreme art. I would indeed, I answered, but I cannot get over what you confided in me privately sub rosa about the no bicycle. That is a story that would make your golden fortune if you wrote it down in a book where people could peruse it literally. He walked back to the dresser opened the lower par part of it and took out a little chest that he put on the table for my inspection. Never in my life did I inspect anything more ornamental and well-made. It was a brown chest like those owned by seafaring men or by the Lascars from Singapore, but it was diminutive in a very perfect way 
as if you were looking at a full-size one through the wrong end of a spyglass. It was about a foot in height, perfect in proportions, and without fault in workmanship. There were indents and carvings and beautiful and fanciful excoriations and designs on every part of it. There was a bend on the lid that gave the article a great distinction. At every corner, there were shiny brass corner pieces, and on the lid, there were brass corner pieces beautifully wrought and curved impeccably against the wood. The whole thing had the dignity and satisfying quality of true art. There now, said McCruskeen, it is nearly too nice, I said at last, to talk about it. I spent two years manufacturing it when I was a lad, said McCruskeen, and it still takes me to the fair. It is unmentionable, I said. Very nearly, said McCruskeen. The two of us then started looking at it, and we looked at it for a full five minutes so hard that it seemed to dance on the table, and it looked even smaller than it might be. I do not often look at boxes or chests, I said simply, but it is the most beautiful box I have ever seen, and I will always remember it. There might be something inside it. There might be, said McCruskeen. He went to the table and put his hands around the article in a fawning way, as if he were caressing a sheepdog. And he opened the lid with a little key, but shut it down again before I could inspect the inside of it. I will tell you a story and give you a synopsis of the ramification of the little pot plot, he said. When I had made the chest and finished, I tried to think what I would keep in it and what I would use it for at all. First I thought of them letters from Bertie, the ones on the blue paper with the strong smell, but I did not think it would be anything but a sacrilege in the end because there were hot bits in them letters. Do you comprehend the trend of my observations? I do, I answered. Then there were me studs and me enamel badge and me precision iron pencil with the screw on the end of it to push the point out, an intricate article full of machinery and a present from Southport. All of these things are what are called examples of the machine age. They would be contrary to the spirit of the chest, I said. They would indeed. And then there was my razor and the spare plate in case I was presented with an accidental bash on the gob in the execution of my duty. But not them. Not them, said McCruskeen. Then there were my certificates and my cash and the picture of Peter the Hermit in the brass thing with straps that I found on the road one night near Matthew O'Carahan's, but not them either. It's a hard conundrum, I said. In the end, I found there was only one thing to do to put myself right with my private conscience. It's a great thing that you found the right answer at all, I countered. I decided to myself, said McCruskeen, that the only sole correct thing to contain in the chest was another chest of the same make, but smaller in cubic dimension. That was a competent masterwork, I said, endeavoring to speak his own language. He went to the little chest and opened it up again and put his hand down sideways like flat plates or like fins of a fish and took out of it a smaller chest, but one resembling its mother chest in every particular of appearance and dimension. It almost interfered with my breathing. It was so delightfully unmistakable. 
I went over and felt it and covered it with my hand to see how big its smallness was. Its brass work had a shine like the sun on the sea, and the color of the wood was a rich, deep richness, like a color deepened and toned only by the years. I got slightly weak from looking at it and sat down on a chair for the purpose of pretending that I was not disturbed. I whistled the old man twangs his britches. Kruskin gave me a smooth, inhuman smile. You may have come on no bicycle, he said, but that does not say that you know everything. These chests, I said, are so like one another that I do not believe they are there at all, because that is a simpler thing to believe than the contrary. Nevertheless, the two of them are the two most wonderful things I have ever seen. I was two years in manufacturing, it said Kruskin. What is in the little one, I asked. What would you think now? I am completely half afraid to ask, I said, speaking truly enough. Wait now till I show you, said Keen, and give you an exhibition and a personal inspection individually. He got two thin butter spades from the shelf and put them down into the little chest and pulled out something that seemed to me remarkably like another chest. I went over to it and gave it a close examination with my hand, feeling the same identical wrinkles, the same proportions, and the same completely perfect brasswork on a smaller scale. It was so faultless and delightful that it reminded me forcibly, strange and foolish as it may seem, of something I did not understand and had never heard of. Say nothing, I said quickly to Keen, but go ahead with what you are doing, and I will watch here, and I will take care to be sitting down. He gave me a nod in exchange for my remark and got two straight-handled teaspoons and put the handles into the last chest. What came out may well be guessed at. He opened this one and took out another one. Within the assistance of two knives, he worked the knives, small knives and smaller knives, till he had 12 little chests on the table, the last of them an article the size of a matchbox. It was so tiny that you would not see the brass work at all for except for the glitter of it in the light. I did not see whether it had the same identical carvings upon it, because, uh, but I was content to take a swift look at it and then turn my head away. But I knew in my soul that it was exactly the same as the others. I said no word at all, because my mind was brimming with wonder at the skill of the policeman. The last one, said McCruskeen, putting away the knives, took me three years to make it, it took me another year to believe I had made it. Have you got the convenience of a pin? I gave him my pin in silence. He opened the smallest of them all with a key like a piece of hair and worked with the pin till he had another little chest on the table, 13 in all, arranged in a row on the table. Queerly enough, they looked to me 
as if they were all the same size but invested with some crazy perspective. This idea surprised me so much that I got my voice back and said, these are the most surprising 13 things I have ever seen together. Wait now, man, McCruskeen said. All my senses were now strained so tensely watching the policeman's movements that I could almost hear my brain rattling in my head when I gave it a shake as if it were drying up into a wrinkled pea. He was manipulating and prodding with his pen till he had 28 little chests on the table, the last of them so small that it looked like a bug or a tiny piece of dirt except there was a glitter from it. When I looked at it again, I saw another thing beside it like something you would take out of a red eye on a windy day. I knew then that by stri the strict computation, computation was then 29. Here's your pin, said McCruskeen. He put it into my stupid hand and went back to the table thoughtfully. He took something from his pocket that was too small for me to see and started working with the tiny black thing on the table beside the bigger thing which itself was too small to be described. At this point, I became afraid. What he was doing was no longer wonderful, but terrible. I shut my eyes and prayed that he would stop while he was still doing things that were at least possible for a man to do. When I looked again, I was happy to see that there was nothing to see and that he had put no more of the chest prominently on the table, but he was working to the left with the invisible thing in his hand on a bit of the table itself. When he felt me look, he came over to me and gave me an enormous magnifying glass, which looked like a basin affixed to a handle. I felt the muscles around my heart tightening painfully as I took the instrument. Come over here to the table, he said, and look there till you see what you see infraocularly. When I saw the table, it was bare only for the 29 chest articles, but through the agency of the glass, I was in a position to report that he had put two more out beside the last one, the smallest being nearly, being nearly half the, a size smaller than ordinary invisibility. I gave him back the glass instrument and took to the chair, and without a word, in order to reassure myself and make a loud human noise, I whistled, Corn Cake Plays the Bagpipes. We may have to do without corn cake. There now, said McCruskeen. He took two wrinkled cigarettes from his fob and lit the two of them at the same time and handed me one of them. Number 22, he said, I manufactured 10 years ago and I have made another different one every year since with any amount of night work and overtime and piecework and time and a half incidentally. I understand you clearly, I said. Six years ago, they began to get invisible glass or no glass. Nobody has ever seen the last five I made because no glass is strong enough to make them big enough to be regarded as truly the smallest things ever made. Nobody can see me making them because my little tools are invisible into the same bargain. The one I am making now is nearly as small as nothing. Number one would hold a million of them at the same time and, and there would be room left for a pair of women's horse breeches if they were rolled up. The deer knows where it will stop and terminate. 
when the, when the museum was founded um, in the 1980s, a friend of ours approached us and uh, having heard that we were beginning this museum, told us to meet her at this particular location, which we did, and it turned out to be a storage facility. She went to the roll-up roll steel door, rolled up the door, and said, someday all of this will be yours, as in now, and gave us the keys to the storage door. What was contained in this storage container were the uh, a collection of curios and artifacts that her grandfather, a man named George Billius, had collected um, in Nebraska, in southwestern Nebraska, around the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries. In that collection was this article, a fruit stone carving, and we were absolutely delighted um, to see this in the collection. As Carrie mentioned, we have been and continue to be inspired by the history of the institution of the museum and look back often to the, really er to the very earliest days of museums when there were no museums, but essentially just collections of um, noble people. And in those collections, a, a collection at that time, 17th century, wasn't truly a collection unless it had a fruit stone carving. So here was our own fruit stone carving. It was less good than the ones we had seen at the British Museum or the Ashmolean, but it was in fact a fruit stone carving and it was ours. So we were delighted. It came with the following text. It says, almond stone, which there was a question mark after almond stone, and we see why, because it looks for all the world like a cherry stone, but goes on to say, the front is carved with a Flemish landscape in which is seated a bearded man wearing a barrette, a long tunic of classical character and thick-soled shoes. He is seated with the viol held between his knees while he tunes one of the strings. In the distance are representations of animals, including a lion, a bear, an elephant ridden by a monkey, a boar, a dog, a donkey, a stag, a camel, a horse, a bull, a bird, a goat, a lynx, a group of rabbits, the latter sitting under a branch on which sits an owl, another bird, and a squirrel. On the back is shown an unusually grim crucifixion with a soldier on horseback, Longinus piercing Christ's side with a lance. The cross is surmounted by a titleless inscribed I-N-R-I, embricted ground. So we thought that we had at that moment a magnificent piece of um, essentially micro-miniature art and proudly displayed this um, this fruit stone carving, we, we thought that this, and still do believe, it was a triumph, even though it's perhaps less good than some of the more famous versions of the same. We thought it was a triumph until, in fact, we met this man. This man's name was Hagab Sandaljan. One Sunday morning, we were visiting
patrons of the museum, Judy and Stuart Spence, and found on their table a mimeograph flyer advertising um, the unique world of microminiatures of Hagab's and Dalgen. We asked, what is this? They, Stuart said, I don't know. One of my co-workers gave this to me. They know that we like art. So we said, let's go. We arranged to meet them there. There was an Armenian Orthodox Church in Boyle Heights. For those of you that, that for those of you that know Los Angeles, that's not where you would typically think of yourself going to see an art exhibition. But there, in the parish hall or in the basement of this Armenian Orthodox Church, we found the likes of these. There were four tables, folding tables covered with white tablecloths, and on the tablecloths were some 33 beautifully crafted viewing devices like this, made of marble, brass, um, acrylic tube, and in the top of the acrylic tube, you see there a magna, or a, essentially a uh, microscope eyepiece. On looking through the eye microscope eyepiece, we were treated to Pope John Paul II. It's, um, to give you a sense of scale, the, the cross that the Pope is holding is a hair, one of Hagab's own hairs, that's been split seven times. So Hagab had learned this art, this craft of working at extraordinarily s small scales. He worked primarily with pieces of his own hair. This is another piece, one of the last pieces he made called Aramix hair. Hagab, at the, at the end of the exhibition, um, my wife Diana said to me, aren't you going to ask him? And I said, yes, of course. And I went back in and I told Hagab that we were just founding a museum, which we were, and asked if he would ever be interested in exhibiting his extraordinary work with us. And to our just great delight, he agreed. Sadly, just as two or three months later, just as we were calling to suggest a date for the uh, opening of the exhibit, his son Levon got on the phone and said that his father had sadly just passed away at the age, at 60 years of age. We went ahead with the exhibition. The family agreed that it was the right thing to do, and we exhibited approximately half of the 33 pieces. The entire Armenian community came out. It ended up to be an homage to Hagab and his life, as well as his remarkable work. As I began saying, this, this is one of his last pieces, made in 1990, just before his death. It's called Aramix Hair. Each of the individual birds that you see sitting on the wire are, in fact, um, carved, each one carved from Hagab's own hair, but the wire that the birds are sitting on is the hair, the silken, fine silken hair of his infant grandson, Aramit. Hagab was not a visual artist by training, but in fact a musician, and a musician of some renown in the Soviet Union, in Soviet Armenia, where he from whence he came with his family in 1980. 
he had played with the Moscow State Orchestra. He had played with the, the Yarovan Symphony Orchestra as first violinist. He also, however, was known as a preeminent music teacher and had founded in the Soviet Union what came to be the state-approved method of violin instruction called the ergonomic method of violin instruction by which he was able to teach violinists to play in a virtuosic manner much more in much shorter time than through traditional um, methods of teaching violin. Agab told us that he felt that this ergonomic practice was in fact the key by to which his microminiature sculpture then owed its, that allowed him to do this very, very fine work. When Hagab came to this country, however, he was not able to find work as a musician or music, well, he did take on private students, but he, he really had a very difficult time, he and his family, and he had quite a rocky road supporting his family through those early years. It was at that time that he decided to focus his energies in the, into this world of micro-miniature sculpture and in fact took out a business license imagining that he would then make these works of art and be able to sell them to support his family. He, of the 33 that he made, he never sold a single one. We're not certain if there were no buyers or if it was because he fell in love with each of them and couldn't bring himself to part, to part with him. This is another example. This is Napoleon in the uh, Eye of a Needle. You, um, there's quite some wonderful irony in this small man with such large ambitions being reduced to this size. He, you can't see it in the slide, but if you are through the microscope eyepiece, you can actually count the, um, the buttons on Napoleon's vest. This is Chow Chow San from Madame Butterfly. At the time that Hagab was alive, there were three living microminiaturists working, at least three living microminiaturists in the West working at the level of artistry and craftsman that Hagab was. Of those three, Hagab Sandaljan was the only one to paint his micro-miniatures. This is one of his rare unpainted micro-miniatures. And you can see them. He is carved from, from his white hair, which is not truly white, of course, but simply devoid of pigment pigment and at this close scale looks almost crystalline or glass-like. We never watched Hagab paint, but we talked with people who did. We watched him actually carving, but never, never painting. People said that his, when you, to watch him paint was at once one of the most remarkable and most unremarkable things they had ever seen. He would practice his stroke. His, his brush was a single hair that he had pointed to a very sharp point, and he would practice his stroke until he knew that he had his motions exactly right, and then wait for the moment between beats of his heart so that the blood 
cursing his pulse, cursing through his fingertips, would not throw, throw off his aim, and then he would make his decisive stroke. People said that you would watch him, watch him, watch him, and it appeared as if nothing happened. I mean, he, he was moving such a tiny distance that you couldn't even see that he had, he in fact made, made his stroke. Agab also worked at a larger scale. This is clearly a grain of rice on which he has carved the likeness of Meshra Mishtots, who is a very important um, personage in Armenian history. He was a fifth century Armenian who actually created the Armenian syllabary. This piece called Broken Dreams refers to two moments in Hagab's life. The, the second of the two is the phase or the period I was referring to earlier when he came to the United States and was unable to find any work as a musician. So it left him um, brokenhearted and his music broken. It also, however, refers to an event that happened early in his life as a child growing up in Alexandria, Egypt. His father, who was a practical man, was horrified that his son was choosing to follow the path, the creative path of an artist, of a musician, and smashed his first violin. This is Little Red Riding Hood with the forest towering above her. Another of the larger pieces, Hagav wore many hats. One of his hats was that of an Armenian revolutionary, and he, he was an ardent na Armenian nationalist, even though he left his country in 1980. And this was a piece he made for the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, the ARF in 1990 uh, on its centennial. Like many um, immigrants to this country, Hagab fully embraced America and in uh, all of its multitude of, you know, multi of its multitudinous aspects including the people at uh, the Walt Disney Corporation and their, and their creations. He created, I believe, five Disney pieces. This is clearly Donald Duck. This was a piece that we've loved always. It's um, called A Procession of Animals to uh, Noah's Ark. We've, at our museum, we look to Noah's Ark as being the earliest and most complete of natural history museums ever ever put together when you think about it two of everything except for the fishes that survived after the flood had to be on um, on the boat so that's really a very complete museum of natural history the all of these animals are carved it, this is a hair that's been split in half and then the animals are carved into the back of the hair and then paint filled paint put on the back and then wipe, wiped away to create the clear surround around the um, animals. Another of Hagab's, to us, one of his best, the sense of motion, you can almost see the blurring of the arm, the way the ear, Goofy's ear is flying. When 
when we went to do the first exhibition of Hagab's work in 1990, the family, as well as th those of us at the museum, became concerned that the people at the Walt Disney Corporation, especially their legal staff, who are actually notoriously good at what they do, would come down with a heavy hand on us for exhibiting these unlicensed representations of their intellectual property. Um, my daughter at the time was in preschool at the Hollywood Los Feliz Jewish Community Center with, and one of her close friends was the daughter of one of the vice presidents of the Disney Corporation. This was not a fancy preschool, they were slumming it. But they, that my daughter and Hannah were close friends and through Hannah we spoke with Peter, her father, who was enormously gracious in getting us a license and the family a license to exhibit these five Disney pieces for all time. The only, to our knowledge, the only other such license that had ever been granted to a, an artist at least at that time was to Andy Warhol, I believe, and that was for a quarter of a million dollars and the license was granted to the St. Algens and our museum for a dollar. It was never clear to us if that was by weight or volume or how they, did, how they made this distinction, but we are happy to be on the one dollar rather than the quarter of a million dollar end. This one, if you, you know, if you can remember all their names, you can easily identify each and every one. And finally, um, Hagab was, through our experience and as well as through the experience of everyone who we talked to that had known him, you know, extraordinarily generous man in this final piece. And if you can read it, it says, may all of your dreams come true, very much sums up Hagab's generosity to um, all of those that with whom he came in contact. We. As I mentioned earlier, we did an exhibition of only half of his work in 1990, but promised the family then that we would do yet another exhibition in which we would exhibit all of the works and produce a catalog. It took us five years, but we were finally able to do that. We, uh, at the time that we produced the catalog, we asked a friend of ours that I know some of you know of a wonderful writer, um, museum director actually named Ralph Ralph Rugoff to write the catalog essay for us he did as he always did uh, absolutely splendid job did a great deal of research into the history of this you know strange little corner of um, the world of creative efforts and in his research he ran across this person a fellow named Nikolai Sidresti, another one of the three micro-miniaturists that I um, mentioned were, a lot, oh, were the masters of the craft. So after the second Hagab exhibition in 1995, Ralph and I over a cup of coffee one kind of balmy February day in Los Angeles said we had to go find this man 
So we got on a plane, very ill-equipped, without proper clothing or even without visas to get into the country, and flew to this place. This place is Kiev, Ukraine. And we got off the plane and somehow talked our way into the country. They gave us a visa for three days, which we felt would be all, all that we would need to accomplish our task. We started asking um, with no Russian skills whatsoever at that time about the whereabouts of the work of this man, Nikolai Sidresti, and we're, we were directed to this place. This place is Kiev Petresk Lavra. It's in the center of Kiev, Ukraine. It's perhaps the center, could arguably the center of Russian Orthodoxy arguably the most sacred place in all of Kievian Rus. The undergrounds, under the ground of this 20 square block monastery are caverns in which all of the saints of orthodoxy are, um, are preserved as incorruptibles. Countless door after door, heavy wooden door, opening to some of the most beautiful and most holy of icons in all of orthodoxy. We were finally, however, led to a smaller door, and inside that smaller door, we found this very unlikely place that was the museum to Nikolai Sidresti's work. It was a museum that had been founded during Soviet times and it's the only non, it's the only secular um, place in the entire of the Lavra. Everything in this museum to his work was designed by Nikolai Sidresti and has meaning. The painting at the far end is a metaphor even down to the sine waves on the walls of the museum Every, every inch has meaning in a kind of cosmology that Nikolai Sayadrusti um, has created. On the walls are, these, are a series of these very large, about four foot diameter glass dishes, and within the dishes are viewers like the viewers with which we looked at Hagab's and Dalgen's work. This work of Nikolai Sidrestis, however, was of a very different kind. If Hagab's work was from the heart, Nikolai Sidrestis' work seemed to come from a place in the mind of arctic coldness and precision. He did work perhaps less emotive, but with unbelievable precision at very, very tiny scales. This piece, um, called a dragonfly, with a, which it is, it's made of gold. This is from this photo. Our photos are not as good of Nikolai Sidresti's work because we didn't have so much time to photograph. But this is one of Nikolai Sidresti's own photos. This is made entirely of gold filigree. Nikolai Sidresti worked a great deal in gold. The clock, the head of the uh, dragonfly is a clock that's the size 
of a bundle of 12 human hairs and the clock is a, is a working, functioning clock. This is Nikolai holding a copy of the catalog of his first exhibition. This is an image of Ralph and I just to prove, in fact, that we were there. This is actually interesting, though, because the, t the table, the, this is his work table, and you see on it is very little. A dissecting microscope, very similar really to Hagab's table. A dissecting microscope, spotlessly clean, and then um, very small, kind of almost crude tools of his own making. The ship that we saw earlier um, is then reproduced in excuse me, is then reproduced here in miniature. I'll read um, Nikolai's own caption for this. It's, this is called In Memory of Alexander Grin, who is an author. The frigate is made of gold platinum glass and is 3.5 millimeters long. Its rigging is only three thousandths of a millimeter thick. The cross-section of this rigging is 400 times less than that of a human hair. The model is comprised of 337 details. This work demonstrates var various of the materials. Processing also remains the three-dimensional setup. This level is of detail is unachievable for modern mechanical facilities. Alexander Grin wrote a fairy tale called Red Sails or Crimson Sails that is a fairy tale that has to do essentially with the primacy of imagination. This is clearly oops, Ernest Hemingway. This, his, his photos look as if they could be drawings, but as you saw a moment ago, we actually saw this and photographed it. It's a pear seed on which he has produced this likeness of really one of the few authors, American authors, that it was safe to eulogize during the Soviet period. This is Sol Solomina Krushelinskaya, who was a very beloved um, Armenian vocalist. The portrait is in bas-relief of the great Ukrainian songstress. Four by five millimeters is carved out of a cherry stone and placed on a meteorite. This is a rose in a hollowed out human hair. Yuri Gagarin, the first of our species to go into the void of space. The chessman, a tiny chessboard is placed on a pinhead. The piece arrangement is taken from a game between Alexander Alokin, who was a Russian, and Raul Capablanca, who was Cuban, for the 1927 World Championship. The chessmen are made of gold. This is apparently the chess mate, uh, checkmate um, move. But if, as I count the squares on that chessboard, there aren't really enough to constitute the chessboard. This is a lock on the end of a severed hair at the top is the assembled lock and the parts that make up the lock are displayed then across the, um, you know, the end of a human hair. 
I know this looks like a drawing, but we saw it with our own eyes. As I mentioned, Nikolai's work, this museum to his work, was the only secular um, space in the whole of the Lavra. And the reason Nikolai felt that he was able to do that was that he could, as he, um, through a translator, told us, he was adept at working the system. And as part of working the system, he made this beautiful image of Vladimir Lenin. But of course, since it's Nikolai Sayadrasi, it isn't going to just be any image of Vladimir. It's the, the, the whole um, structure of the drawing is actually made by, the, uh, by pressure on the quill of the pen as he was writing from top to bottom a treatise that Lenin himself had written. This treatise was on how to control a population through the creation of a famine, which then, you know, strangely, horribly, the Soviets did to these exact people, the, U the Ukrainians not so many years later. I said at the beginning that um, this effort of ours was to bring to a larger audience evidence of human artistry and ingenuity on the microscopic scale. In 1993, we did an exhibition that I'm, from which we saw those, vid those, those video clips earlier called, Na errone erroneously called, Nanotechnology machines in the microscopic realm. I say erroneously because that what we ended up exhibiting were not truly nanotechnology, but micro-machining, which are different. Um, and by a scale of magnitude, different nanotechnology being a constructive process by putting together atoms or molecules, micro-machining being a subtractive process. This whole world of making machines on a very tiny scale actually began in 1959 when the noted physicist Richard Feynman gave a talk at California Institute of Technology at Caltech called There's Plenty of Room at the Bottom. In that famous talk, now infamous talk, um, he envisioned a field of sub-micro-miniaturization, acknowledging that living cells perform a variety of complex functions. Feynman reasoned that humans could theoretically manipulate mechanical devices on the same tiny scale. As part of his talk, Feynman issued a challenge to the scientific and engineering communities to make an electrically powered rotating motor no bigger than a cube 1 64th of an inch um, high. Feynman, in order to add impetus to the endeavor, offered a $1,000 prize of his own money for the first such working motor. $1,000 in those days was quite a bit of money, and this was a, a very generous offer. Six months after the award was offered, a Pasadena man named William McLean, noting that the prize remained unclaimed, began to work on a project, and within a few months, called to make an appointment with Dr. Feynman. 
McClellan arrived with a large wooden box and reportedly Feynman was certain that it contained yet another fist-sized model engine. McLean, however, produced from the wooden box a microscope with which to view his miniature contrivance. Using sharpened toothpicks and a watchmaker's lathe, lathe in a micro-drill, William McLean had fashioned a two-phase permanent magnet synchronous motor that was in fact 10% smaller than Feynman's required 1 64th of an inch cube. This is William McLean on the left and then Richard Feynman on the right and his little motor down below, which we proudly exhibited uh, in our exhibition. Feynman was, however, disappointed by this extraordinary um, work of McLean's. He was disappointed from the point of view that is what he had really hoped to do was create a new form of fabrication that in fact did come into existence, but a number of dec decades later, this um, he Feynman didn't know exactly how this would be done, but he he knew it was going to be possible, and a number of people then in the um, late 80s and early 90s began this world of creating micro machines. This is a, one of the very early pieces. It's a spring, and to give you a sense of scale of this spring, that equal sign in the upper left hand is nine and a half microns in a human hair, which has so far been our kind of standard, our gauge for judging the smallness of things. A human hair is 200 microns. This is a very tiny spring. This is another, a lot, I think a lot of this exhibition came out of the love of these beautiful scanning electron microscope images. But this is another um, spring that is I'm not reading this right now um, in terms of the in terms of the scale i can't I can't read that, but I know it's a small spring. This is the first working this is what Feynman had hoped to see. This is the first working micro machined motor. It's an electrostatic motor that uh, that bar at the bottom is a hundred microns, so this is about that's a little bit under the diameter of a human hair. We had this in the exhibition. It was made by Yu Chong Tai of the Electrical Engineering Department at California Institute of Technology. He was the first person to succeed in doing this. It didn't do actually do any work. It just spun wildly, but beautifully. This was another electrostatic motor that he made. To give a sense of scale, this is uh, something called a wobble motor, and that's the, uh, the edge of a dime above it. Most of the devices created through the 90s were not in fact, didn't do work as I said, but this is one of the few that did. This is a neurosensor that's made at a very, very small scale. That this tiny, tiny needle that is um, about the size of a human hair across is then um, loaded with these electrical sensors along its beautiful edge. This is a neural array would be put into a laboratory animal when it was an embryo and then with wires coming out of the head of the 
animal, the researchers could watch the electrical impulses in the laboratory animal through the course of its life. These are these beautiful pyramids that are actually go on the end of this device. This is an atomic point microscope. When the good people at International Build International Business Machine, IBM, uh, spelled out their, the letters of their name in atoms. This was the device that it took to be able to um, see that they had actually done it. Anyone has further interest? I realize that went on quite a while. Yes? We're forever. Have you been to visit ever? Yes. Um, how long ago was the last? Ah, so so you've seen us basically in our current state. We're in the process forever of doing you know new things. We've uh, most recently, uh, as Carrie mentioned, we've embarked on this project of making these motion pictures um, with our with colleagues um, from Saint Petersburg on the history of Russian um, cosmological space science and Russian astronomy. And we just are kind of this week finishing the third of those, which will start to play in our theater, um, well, which actually has already kind of begun to just now play in the theater. We're, um, we, if you recall, we have one of our exhibitions following on this other theme of the museums, which is um, Soviet science, Soviet space science. Um, we have a, a gallery of portraits of, excuse me, five of the dogs that went into space as part of the Russian space program. Those dogs will be traveling soon to St. Petersburg for an exhibition there. And in their place were um, having an exhibition of drawings of a 19th and early 20th century uh, Russian visionary from the archives of uh, first envisioned in any meaningful and actually very practical way.